Hey, everyone. Welcome to Time Sensitive. This week, Andrew's in conversation with the New York cult fashion designer, Rachel Comey. What'd you talk with her about? So for the past 20 years, Rachel's been making clothing that's known for a certain level of cultural sophistication. She makes the thinking person's wardrobe. Intellects, artists, cool politicians, all love her work. I wanted to get to a little bit of why and how. She owns the company 100%. She's totally followed her own path, partly by being much more committed to her customer and culture than fashion industry cycles. She's definitely doing her own thing. Right. This tightly curated, fewer, better things, customer first approach. Absolutely. And in terms of the customer, we talked a lot about designing through dialogue. You know, she understands her customer's desires and also has designed over time as the customer's grown, as she's grown, things have changed. So we talked about that growth over time, also how she's done it on her own terms and by her own instincts. And we got into where she's at now, especially after running 20 years, how she's thinking about sustainability throughout the process. Of course, the Uline Instagram post that caused a big stir, which was really incredible. Yeah, exactly. Like basically coming out and saying, look, I'm not going to get my shipping materials from this company anymore. I don't believe in their politics. Exactly. We went to a lot of different places. She's a lovely person. She's really fun to talk to. I'm excited about this episode. Before we get into it, we'd first like to thank our season six sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison, Van Cleef, and Arpels. With permanent campuses in both Paris and Hong Kong, and opening next year a third campus in Shanghai, as well as various traveling schools, Lecole offers a wide range of classes, each lasting from two to four hours. With a maximum size of 12 students, these courses are taught by a group of 50-some teachers, art historians, gemologists, jewelers, and artisans, all of them experts in their fields. Lecole's teachers bring a specific hands-on approach and a particularly high level of jewelry expertise that can't be found anywhere else. Art history lessons, for example, are based on unique historical pieces taken straight from the Lecole collection. Introductory courses on jewelry making techniques are given by high-level practitioners, and gemology is taught by observing real stones and using professional gemology instruments. You can learn more about Lecole and its many course offerings at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now, here's Andrew and Rachel. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So today I wanted to start with your recent post on Instagram, which was amazing, I think, for a lot of people. Okay. You wrote, finally, we found alternatives, the hideous oh, monopoly mm-hmm. on cardboard and shipping supplies, Uline. Right, right, yeah. Did you think it was another Instagram post? Well, we had a really nice one just this week about this natural dye company that we worked with, which is a smaller, maybe, touch point than this Uline one actually, but also really beautiful and nice storytelling. By the end of it, you wrote that buying a cardboard box from them is ultimately funding anti-abortion movements, open gun laws, et cetera. How did you arrive at that? How long did it take? It doesn't seem like you dropped this stuff. You don't kind of virtue signal. No, no. I mean, it's been a frustrating thing for me for a long time. They're the biggest supplier of, you know, if you're a wholesaler in any way or manufacturer, do any kind of shipping. I mean, even art shipping and whatever. They're the biggest, most sophisticated supplier. So I share that kind of thing when it's useful to people. You know, I finally found legitimate suppliers through this Refuse Uline movement, which was just a small Instagram handle. I don't even know the people behind it. But since they were listing solid resources, I thought, oh, my God, I can't wait to share this with people. Everybody needs this information. Had you wanted to get off of your line for a long time? Oh, for a long time. A long time. And I've been trying. And they're just so big. And they have warehouses everywhere. And when you're shipping every single day from someplace, they just make it too easy to go other places. and. So finally, we have some options and we found place, you know, on the West Coast, there's place on the East Coast. So I just wanted to share it. 
as you can see from that post, so many other companies and individuals and even people not in our industry have been reaching out. Oh, great. We're not doing new line anymore either. We're going to do it. Yeah. So. So, yeah, well, it had this like open source quality, you know, yeah. which is rare today for someone to say, and here's a solution. I'm not just going to vilify something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I like to be actionable about things. You know, yeah. I can't just share my random politics without feeling like there's something collaborative or informative or potential to kind of learn from something that I learned that I want to share or, you know, something along those lines. Your business is now more than 20 years old. You turned 20 last year, I guess, yeah. which is amazing. <laughs> and it seems along the way, at least from the outside, you've kept so close to your intentions. You know, the business and the work and the creativity, all of it seems to be cohesive. Thank you. And it's sort of values driven and it's never felt thirsty for scale. And I think that that's something that a lot of fashion designers specifically people in your industry struggle with this yeah. idea of scale because yeah. a moment happens. So how have you kind of kept it closely intense? How do you think about it? Well, I don't know if that was intentional or just the way that I was able to do it. In the early days, I didn't have like access to scaling anything, you know, I mean, I think I do now, but then it was either figure it out or don't do it. You know, it wasn't right. like, there was huge opportunities, I think, at the time. But then I guess just kind of staying true to what we want to do and want to make. And I mean, there's been a million times and we haven't been able to scale because of these different parameters. Department store comes in and even Barney's back in the day, I remember their first order with us. I was making menswear mostly at the time and they wanted to buy the men's shirts and put them in the women's department. But my intention was that they were for men, you know, at that time, there was like a specific kind of thing we were doing. And they just want to pigeonhole you into this, like, no, you're going to be the shirt person, but we're going to do this with you. But, you know, it wasn't our intention. So, you know, we were never really able to go into like a department store and I'm not explaining this well, but like flourish in their kind of framework that they want you to flourish in. They want to pigeonhole you someplace. Like, you're going to be the denim brand. You're going yeah. to be the flouncy dress brand. You're going to be the minimalist blah, blah, blah brand. And I never wanted to have a company like that. Like, I I like to explore creatively silhouettes, lifestyle. There's a lot of things in what I like to do and make that I don't want to be pigeonholed into a tiny little thing, a tiny little well, segment. it seems like you've built a business almost like an art practice. I mean, different in terms of the output, but in terms of integrity and sort of your own narrative-driven idea. Yeah, I guess. And, you know, you mentioned how fortunate you've been to learn so much over 20 years and all the, the times you've spoken about turning 20. Yeah. Do you feel <laughs> that you're learning more now or has it slowed? Hmm. No, I'm still learning, I think, for sure. <laughs> But just different things. We're learning a lot right now about sustainability, as an example. Like, that's kind of an interesting one. And more and more over the past years, there's, you know, the whole industry is learning together. So, you know, our suppliers at the mills, they have discoveries that they're figuring out with the yarns and the traceability. So all of that we're kind of learning as an industry, which is great. And then now I'm learning a lot about, like, data analysis, I feel like a little bit because of all of the kind of shift to e-commerce and how powerful that is. And just in the last three or four years. For yeah. You. Yeah. Really yeah. from the pandemic forward, it became the kind of front runner of the business and how to better communicate through there, what the tools are, you know, all that stuff. So there's a lot of learning there. So sort of as time has shifted and changed and evolved, the world culture has shifted. Yeah. You've had to learn different things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But your own intuition seems to be something that you've stuck to the whole time. Perhaps, yeah. But I have good collaborators and I'm very dialogue driven in the design process. And as a designer, I feel like part of what you're doing is trying to fill a need of some kind to address it. So 
I spend a lot of time thinking about my customers, their lifestyles, where they're going, what they're doing, how they want to feel, how they want to feel in that room, how they want to feel on that vacation, how they want to feel in their private time. And like, what are the fibers and the fabrics and the things that I can do to facilitate and enhance that feeling? Right. So that's constant thinking around all that stuff. Do you feel like you've been intuitive and instinctual with your decision making over time? It's something I think you're known for is is making choices and kind of not waffling. Has that shifted over time? I would say yes and no. Yeah, there's things that happen that will like hit my confidence a little bit where I don't feel so confident in the decision I'm making. Yeah, I definitely have those experiences for sure. But the nature of this business that I'm in is that you just have to keep going. And so I've really learned over time to just keep moving. And if you make a bad decision, you can recover from it and right. you can evolve and you can learn from it and just keep going. The pace kind of helps in terms yeah, of it there's does. like a churn. In it the does. I've always really liked that about my business versus being in an art practice where I feel like your deadlines are fewer and farther in between. And I don't know if I could spend all that time with the contemplation of the deadline further in advance. Right. You're just next up at bat constantly. Yeah. I just kind of learn by doing, like keep going. Yeah. And you've remained independent as a business, which is yeah. just an extraordinary thing. I think very few. Thank you. More and more in our generation, actually, if you look at other yeah. businesses. But you think more in our generation are independent than, yeah. than younger and older? Than older. Yeah. Yeah. There's more independent fashion businesses, yeah. it seems like. And yeah. But you're really closely connected to designing, manufacturing, and also retail. Mm -hmm. And you have a family. And you have a social life. Multitasking is a big thing with you. Right. <laughs> How so, do you think so about... what Isha said, I think, probably. Well, I was over the weekend with a friend of yours who you work closely with, and I asked her what it's like to work with you, and she said something that she loves about you and your work is your boundless energy. Oh, that you would come in and say, it's Monday. Isn't everyone psyched? Yeah. <laughs> I do love Mondays. I love Mondays. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, I wonder if she sees herself this way. And what do you love about Mondays? I like working. As we just talked about, like, I learned so much by working. You can experience so much. I love the engagement of different people that you work with that you wouldn't necessarily have relationships with if you didn't have that job in that place I love experiencing that and I just like trying stuff you know yeah. I like taking risks and like let's see let's see how it happens let's go for it so you know Monday is a good time to start all that you know the, the weekends for the recovery I guess so I, I feel ready for that do you consciously kind of consider time or try to remain in the moment do things take care of themselves naturally how do you deal with the number of things you have to do and the need for extreme focus? Well, I make a lot of lists. I'm a list maker. That helps me. I like to multitask, but I think part of it is because maybe I can't quite stay on one task. You know, maybe that's part of my challenge that I've just found a workaround for. I don't know, because I like to just layer on the things and I'm in a practice where I feel like I come back I start something that I'm into, explore it, and then I know I need to sleep on it or rest on it to come back to it to decide if I'm on the right track or not. So I kind of do a lot of that. So that's where the layering, I think, of multitasking is in a way, because yeah. then I'm able to circle back, explore that thing, keep going. I guess the things communicate with each other in a right. way. And you also made a big shift in your life pre-pandemic. You moved upstate. You left the Correct, city. yeah. Which is like a total, I guess, lucky thing. You must have been laughing when everyone else was trying to get upstate. <laughs> I, I did feel really lucky. Well, I also know I would never have done it during that time. And well, so I feel lucky right, to have yeah. been there. Because it just would have been, it was such a hard time for the business. And I just don't know that I would have been able to, like, take that personal risk at that time when I was so busy, worried about how we were going to get through that pandemic. Right. You and every single business, mm -hmm. especially independent ones, which I want to get into in a bit. How has this sort of move shifted your life? How has having kids shifted the way you're thinking about work? Well, I think originally when you go from no kids to kids, suddenly your job becomes much more heavy in a way. Before that, I thought, well, if this falls apart, I can always get a job. These are marketable skills. Now I know how to do this. I know how to do that. I can get a job. But then the farther you go into it, 
and then you have children and then the responsibilities start to get a lot heavier. And, the stakes are certainly higher. Yeah. And employees, by the way. I mean, it's oh, like, of course. And their families. Yeah. Yeah. And all the stuff that goes along with that, the health insurance and the blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it got heavier, the responsibility. But moving upstate, moving upstate, moving upstate, I lived close to my store and close to my studio. And when I had the children really young, that was great because I could just pop home all the time and the babysitter could bring the children to me in the office and I could nurse them at the office and send them off with the babysitter and like go back and forth. And, and I lived, you know, five minute walking distance. And when I come into the door at the end of the night, I was always late. And when I went back to the office, I was always late, not late, but just like, I couldn't be everywhere, all the places that I wanted to be. And I always felt like it didn't make a difference. So then the idea of moving upstate was like, okay, well, now I have an hour and a half commute. What am I going to do on this commute? There's nothing I can do about it. So I kind of gained an hour and a half twice a day to myself in which I have a little bit. I mean, usually I just kind of work or listen to podcasts or something. In a way, a five-minute commute or an hour and a half commute, you know, I'll buy some time, but we live in a beautiful, quiet, rural place outside of the city with the birds and the bees and the snakes and the coyotes. I love living up there. The commute is tough, but yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's yeah. kind of wild that you're still coming into the city. Most yeah. days you're commuting three hours a day. Yeah. You completely extracted yourself from the life you'd sort yeah. of built your business on, yeah. but somehow it's benefited you in tons of ways. Yeah. On a personal level, it's great. It's great for my family, I think. I mean, you never know. You're always like, the grass is always greener. And during yeah. the pandemic, I'm like, oh, this town is tiny. Maybe we should, maybe my kids need more exposure. But, you know, it's always the opposite of what you think. Yeah, you yeah. Question your decisions What are you there. giving your children? Are you giving yeah. them the city life or are you giving them the country yeah. life? Yeah, Because you can't do both. No. What have you sort of adopted in your life that you didn't do in New York? Are you doing time in nature, walking? Oh, well, I mean... Hiking. I do a lot of hiking, which I love. Gardening, you know, middle-aged hobbies. Right, that are very, exactly. No, all <laughs> that about are, it. Yeah, that are very, you know, yeah, I make hot sauce and, you know, can our peaches and our tomatoes and stuff like that. So. And you grew up in Vermont. So in a way, this yeah. you know this. I grew up outside of Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, right. You went to yeah, school Yeah, and then I went to school in Vermont, but I spent a lot of time up there. I right. love Vermont. My parents lived there part-time of the year. But I do love the landscape of the hills and the mountains and, and everything. I find it super peaceful and energizing. And, you know, it's nice to get on the train and come into the city and just be part of the fabric of the city again, you know? Yeah. So, and we'll see when the kids grow up, what will happen then? Like, will we come back to the city more or will we stay up there? I don't know. Have you noticed any shift in how you're working though? Or you're... Well, hmm... Not really in a huge way. I mean, I like always working kind of. So it doesn't so much matter. Before the pandemic, everything is pre and post, right? Totally. So pre-pandemic, when I would work from home, it felt like a big deal, you know, like I was working from home. But now it just seems normal because everybody's kind of taking the days here and there. And so there is a little bit more flexibility there. And now we've gotten also good at the Zoom meetings. I just stack them all up on one day. And that's a work from home day. And that day I usually hike. And that day I have dinner with the kids and, you know, stuff like that. What was your childhood like in Connecticut? I lived in a suburb of Hartford, just to the south. And it was like classic middle class suburb running around the neighborhood with dozens of kids and playing wiffle ball and dress up and roller skating and chalk on the driveway and that kind of thing. So, yeah, doing that, you know, pre seems like preschool and- shooting, pre-internet seems pretty dreamy, I guess. Yeah. And it seems yeah. like that sort of vision comes into your work sometimes. I mean, there's sometimes individual yeah. pieces that will definitely feel like that nostalgia. Sometimes. Yeah. I think about that. I've talked about that before because I had teenagers that lived next to me in the 70s. There were four brothers and sisters, and they were 16, 17, 18, 20, or something like that. And they had 
pool parties and I would hang on their chain link bench and just kind of watch them hang out. And the boys had like big feathered hair and chains and clogs and washing their car, you know, really cinematic stuff. And I feel like it sticks with me for some of that stuff. You tell this beautiful story about your grandmother. Oh, which one? And pearls. All the pearls. I know. Which is so fitting for what our podcast is. And I wanted you to share that with us a little bit. (laughs) Sure, sure. Oh, my God. So that is such a nice story. So ever since I was little, my grandmother would give me every Christmas and every birthday one single pearl. And by the time I was eight or, you know, and then every couple of years, She'd strand it together. There would be like five pearls. On this. And you'd wear it that year. Yeah, we'd wear it to like church on Easter or something like this. My pearl necklace that had maybe five pearls on it. And then this teeny, teeny, teeny little chain. And then a couple more years, I'd get another pearl, another pearl. And she'd add it and she'd add it. And by the time I was 12 and 13, 14, I was very much rolling my eyes about this pearl necklace that was going to take 20 years to give to me. But I think probably when I was 18 or something like that, when I graduated high school, I had the complete necklace, which was so beautiful. I finally appreciated it in my adult life that it actually took her 20 years to gift me this necklace. Sadly, it got stolen out of my apartment on Elizabeth Street. But whatever, I still have the necklace, obviously, in my heart. Have you carried this on with your own kids? I haven't, no. Maybe with my grandkids. Yeah, that'll be good. (laughs) And you went to boarding school. Uh Mm -hmm. Did you wear uniforms? No. No, but did you have a sense of style at that time? Did you? Oh, I was into clothes when when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. I was into clothes as a kid, honestly. I liked how people communicated through their clothes, how you would see people from another town or another foreign country, like if there was a student that came to live in your, you know, go to your school from another country, like what? Their jeans are so different. Their t-shirt is so different. So I was always into kind of the nuances of style, I think in communication through it. I was never the kind of person that was obsessed with glamour or luxury or wealth. I enjoy glamour and in all of these things, but it wasn't like via that Yeah, you weren't interested in the labels. You were interested in the phenomena of it. Yeah, and that continued for a long time. When you go to boarding school, there's definitely some codes and things that you learn from other demographics, from this type of people from this area of the world. And this is what the rich preppies wear, and this is what the hippies from upstate wear. You know, you start to kind of, yeah. So I enjoyed studying and unlocking that kind of thing. But you ultimately went into sculpture and art. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And what drew you to that? I just always liked making things. I mean, separate than the communication point of clothes, I always loved materials and proportion. So I studied art and just kept drawing me towards the three-dimensional elements. So I studied that through college. And then you started a company, an underwear company. Oh, my God. So, well, after college... Which I don't think a lot of people know, right? No, But that was no, your first business. No, no, that was teeny. Yeah, that was just kind of a learning thing. After I got to college and I started working, first at a bakery. I was just recounting this to my husband this weekend. I was at a bakery because we were in Vermont dropping my daughter at camp. Then I waited tables for a year after college. I was thinking about all this about in how my... In Vermont. Yeah, yeah, after college in Vermont. Why'd you stay? I just think I didn't know what else to do. At the time, Burlington had a kind of growing scene, music scene, and kind of a lot of artists, and a lot of them that now live here in New York that i still friends with. But it wasn't even Burlington quite at that moment, because I moved south even to like a more rural area, and I was just waiting tables and making art. I (laughs) I did some assisting for some artists up there. Like I was changing his oil and like weeding his yard. It was the weirdest job. Just waffling around, really. And then I got a job at a design firm in Burlington, which kind of drew me back to Burlington. I got a job as a receptionist, making $15,500 for the year was my salary. In 95 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I would work like 70-hour days just. Right. And I was a receptionist. But I would just, 
I don't know. I think I discovered I loved working around that time and maybe at that place even. Feeling useful. Yeah, just like that the things that you did had consequence and you can create something, you know, and I, at that time, we moved into a new building. We created a gallery there and I started having art shows that they let me kind of run. And then that took off in a weird way in Burlington. And we had all these beautiful shows, actually. And then during that time is when I started the underwear company, too. My friend, <laughs> my friend Pascal's mom worked in the theater department at Dartmouth, and she made all my first patterns for me because she could make patterns. And I didn't really know anything about making Why patterns. Why an underwear company? Well, I just thought it would be like the most basic place to start. <laughs> right. Start at the first thing you put on. Start at the bottom. So, yeah. And I, I don't know. I had a little concept for it. Like the underwear, some of them had pockets. And it's like an art project that kind of turned into a little tiny brand. And I was able to learn a little bit about the process, the pattern making, the sizing, the grading, the manufacturing, the costing, whatever. Begin working it out. And then you got to New York somehow. And then I came to New York in my later, after a few years of graduating college. So, right. So I came right, to- You like had a life after college in Vermont. Yeah. It's not like you came directly no, down. No, I know, which is weird. When I finally came, people were like, finally, where have you been? My first job the next day, one of these friends from college said, okay, I have a job for you. And I'd already had some success in my small pond in Vermont, right? I was running the gallery. We had press on it and like it became a thing. With my friend Pascal, who also has a gallery here now, but he stayed in that business. I did not. So I come down. My friend says, tomorrow, will you help me on this job I'm doing? It was $400 for the day. And I was like, oh, my God, that's insane. How much money I'm going to make tomorrow? Whatever. Sure. So my job was to go pick up the sports car and then go pick up a model. And the model got in the backseat of the car. And I was there like, oh, my God am I a driver right now? I just discovered, I didn't even know what I was doing on the job. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm her driver. So she didn't speak English very well. And she made me pick up her boyfriend. And then we're supposed to go upstate to some photo shoot, like a Ralph Lauren photo shoot or something like that. She wanted me to go to Midtown and had to circle around Nike Town for like an hour and a half while the photo shoot people were like, where are you? And I'm like, I don't know. The model and her boyfriend wanted to go to Nike Town. Anyway, so that was my first day in New York was being a PA. So I did that, that type of work. I mean, some of it got a little more, you know, I bet it was like that gig used work. some of my actual skills Yeah. <laughs> later, like some styling and type of things and whatever. And you but, got to theory somehow? Uh-huh. Yeah. And then so after maybe of, I don't know the years exactly, but maybe after a year of doing some styling work and then trend scouting was kind of a thing at that time. Yeah. Do you remember this? Late 90s. Yeah, I remember this type of job. So I did some of that type of thing, maybe a little editorial, some theater stuff, some costumes. What else was I doing? Some PA stuff. But you weren't worried. You were just kind of doing. Mm, I don't know. I wonder. My parents are probably worried. But I was experiencing stuff, you know, yeah. and it was interesting. And I, I think that was one of my parameters. <laughs> life after in my 20s it was is it interesting you know and it was it was so exciting to be in New York I loved yeah. it I loved New York when I came and especially that time late 90s yeah it was so much fun we going out all the time late 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 out and helping to put on exhibitions or music shows or did the costumes for this thing or props for this other thing I made this prop like yeah just you made what I made this prop once that I was just thinking of for in Joe's pub for this musician performers. And I took the suitcase, filled it with wood and then drilled little holes and put all those matches, strike anywhere matches. And then on the bottom of the shoes of the performer, I put sandpaper so that <laughs> you jump on it and whatever, make little fire. I remember just whatever. Anyway, stuff like that. And then the theory job came along. Uh, friends of a friend was working there and they were hiring or maybe even at that time I was like, I think I got to get a job with health insurance or something. It might have been it. That makes sense. It's probably that. Right. Like I'm going to get a real job. Yeah. I don't know how much longer I can do this. So that was that. That was the real job that I got. And I was there, I don't know, a year and a half or I don't actually know how long, but. And then you got fired. Yeah, I got fired. 
I was a great worker. I've always been a really good worker. It's just, it's pretty boring. I mean, it was somewhat interesting a little bit to see that side of the fashion biz. It was the beginnings of like fast fashion. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I had some nice bosses that I liked. It was just very narrow creatively. You creatively doing Yeah, it. I mean, I was supposed to be the kind of color trend person, but, you know, I would make some mood boards and suggest this or that. But it wasn't like I had a lot of responsibility, so there wasn't a ton for me to sink my teeth into, I think. So that's why on the side, I thought, oh, I'm making these costumes and things. Maybe I'll try to manufacture these shirts. And those the shirts I'm talking about at Barney's. I found this shirt maker in New Jersey, this second generation, maybe. I think it was his second generation. And his name was Mel Gampert, and he was about to retire. And I think he had a son that worked there. Anyway, they did custom shirts for, like, all the custom shirt type of stores that they had around the country. And you could make really small quantities there. They helped me make a bunch of my first shirts. And so that was fun. And you were doing stage costumes for Gogo Bordella. Yeah, I'm starting to think. And some others, too, at the time. Different stylists were calling me at that time because of the stuff that I was doing for them. Right. And saying, do you have any other stuff? I'm doing this other shoe for these other people, other band. And I was like, sure, yeah, come and get this. Yeah, I was like cutting, pasting, gluing, sewing, mishmashing stuff together. Hey, everyone. Taking a quick break here to tell you a little bit about our season six sponsor, La Cole School of Jewelry Arts which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. Over the past decade, La Cole has welcomed more than 50,000 students from 50 different nationalities through its programs. They've built two permanent campuses in Paris and Hong Kong, hosted nine traveling schools in Tokyo, Hong Kong, New York, and Dubai, and organized more than 300 conversations in 20 different cities. They've also created 18 exhibitions about subjects ranging from the work of the artist, and former time-sensitive guest Daniel Brush, to precious Art Deco objects, to bird-shaped jewelry, and 26 publications about subjects including men's rings, necks, and cuffs. This year, celebrating their 10th anniversary, Cole is introducing six new classes, presenting six exhibitions, and publishing eight new books. You can learn more about Cole and its current and upcoming offerings at www.letcolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now back to the episode. Well, it was also this moment where like the handcrafted t-shirt was coming out and the shirt like, yeah, you know, they were selling $300 spray painted t-shirts at Ron Herman. Yeah, at probably. The time. Yeah, probably. You know? Yeah. It was yeah. this moment of DIY and fashion and kind of fucked up. And yeah. And a lot of it was, we, we didn't use the word at the time, but like an upcycling type of mentality, you yeah. know, which I think makes sense for our generation, actually. You know, we thrifted like crazy all through my teens and college years and afterwards. And you were constantly, we go to this barn up in Vermont where you just climb up on top of this mountain of clothes and just pull out and go and buy it by the pound and then take it back and cut. What was that place in Brooklyn that you could do that? Domsey's. Yeah. Domsey's. Oh, yeah. I mean, I probably still have things from Domsey's. Yeah. Which was the same thing you could buy by yeah, the pound. Yeah, by the pound. Yeah. And somehow you got a shirt on David Bowie. Exactly. That was around the same time. And how did that happen? The stylist, Avina Gallagher, who was kind of a friend and in the scene that we were hanging out in and she was doing this David Bowie's tour and she asked me for some items and I said, sure. And I gave her these things that I'd been working on. Then she called me a couple days later, David Bowie loves them. He wants to buy them off of you. What do you want to sell them for? And she's like, charge whatever you can. And I was like, hundred dollars. Cause I'd gotten them like they were kind of transformed from some thrift shop stuff, you know? So I thought that was so much money. She was like, okay. Sure. So he'd bought like four shirts or something and she gave me $400 cash. Like, here you go. And I was like, oh, great. I was so excited. And then it showed up on Letterman. Yeah. And then it was on Letterman. It was like a bunch. Of, he kept wearing the shirts. I mean, it must have been the his tour look or something. But for me, that, that was insane. Things. Yeah. Yeah. That helped. That threw some confidence my way, I guess. Right. Yeah. So then I thought, oh, I think I'll have a show. I think I'll do a show. 
that sounds fun. What's fashion week like? What's a show? I had already helped to put on other types of shows. Let's just let's just put a fashion show on. I don't even know if I'd ever even been to one or even knew how it went. We've convinced some guy with a parking garage down on Washington Street below Canal. We rigged some lights up in there and got some benches. I don't know how. So my friends helped me produce it. We just cast all of our friends. Isha's husband was in it. Like so many people were in it. We just cast all the different guys that we knew. Very few models, but mostly just guys that we knew. And then had a little show and it was very fun. Then that was Saturday, I think. And then this showroom came to me. And they said, we love it. We think we can sell this. We'll represent you. That was like on Sunday or something. And they were like, bring the collection over. Okay. So I bring the collection over and they're, where's your line sheet? How much do these cost? I'm like, oh, what's a line sheet? I don't know. You know, I didn't really know anything. And so they helped me put it together. And then Monday they had some appointments and a lot of their buyers were from Japan. And Japan was loved New York at that time. It was like one of those moments when Japan was loving New York. And my say we're big in Japan was the thing at the time. Exactly. You know, with the fit of our shirts were kind of skinny and more like tailored. So it suited the frame of a Japanese man quite well. So immediately I got all these orders on Monday and then Tuesday was 9-11. So market shut down, fashion week, you know, like the whole world changed on that day. So anyway. So 9-11 happens and you're like, wait, what the fuck am I going to do now? Well, because I got fired from theory. So what happened with the theory firing was that someone in the office, this gal that I knew worked at Time Out New York and they were doing a thing, up and coming thing, up and coming designers or something. She said, I'm going to put you in. I was like, okay, thanks. Cool. And then for whatever reason, so she put a big picture in there. You couldn't miss it. So then I go into work the next day and it's photocopied on everybody's desk in the office. Like somebody had put it, somebody, I guess, didn't like me or just didn't like me going against the policy, the company policy that I didn't really know about, like the non-compete. I didn't see it as competition in any way. I thought, well, it's kind of thriving. You know, what's the difference? Anyway, the owner of theory came in and was like, I'm sorry, but you should have told me. And so now I have to let you go. So I was like, okay. So then I had unemployment. So I lived on unemployment for, and then because of 9-11, they like extended unemployment. So I had kind of eight months of unemployment to kind of help recover from and start the business, I guess. You're freelancing at The Gap. You're making (laughs) 75 bucks an hour making copies. But after six years, somehow you get out of debt. Yes. And you hire your first two employees. Uh Yes. And I guess I'm curious, having also experienced a similar thing myself, was through that period, how did you convince yourself that it was going to work? Because when you think about it now, it seems crazy. Yeah. But at that time, somehow. Yeah. Like naive ambition. How do you get your head around that? Like the risks you take now are probably so much lower than the risks you took then. Well, the stakes are way higher now, though. Right. So, I mean... I don't know. I think that what I said earlier where I thought, oh, well, I'm learning. These are marketable skills. I can always get a job. They wipe your credit after seven years. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) well, I didn't I never had to file for bankruptcy or anything. I just kept going, kept it moving. But it didn't give you anxiety. You were able to manage that. I was younger, so I don't know. I think I felt part of a community where we were all doing stuff. We're all trying to make our way. So I didn't feel like different necessarily than other people. Like I I knew tons of other designers that were in my shoes. I knew lots of artists, lots of musicians, like a lot of people that were just scrapping things together. I just, I find that now sometimes my young employees, when they start out, they're so stressed out that they think they have to be a CEO tomorrow or like a founder of some big deal thing or like I see them with so much more pressure than I really did feel. I mean, I didn't start my business till my late 20s and I didn't get out of debt until mid 30s. I guess I had a fear of failure. I think I do have that, which does keep me kind of moving and trying and working hard that's probably part of it. And then I think the naivety is also key. But I think also just the community of other people was helpful. 
Were you thinking about money as an equivalence to time? You know, in terms of like, this is as much money as I have and it'll keep me going for this long? Mm, well, in manufacturing, it's hard to think like that a little bit because it's more like, okay, I have this amount of orders. How am I going to front the money for the fabrics and the manufacturing before I can get paid by these stores? Right. You know, so there's a little bit of a a different way of having to deal with money, you know? Right, because you know it's coming. You know it's coming, but it could not come. They could cancel the order. They could bail somehow, which is not unusual. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of risks associated there. At some point you left showrooms and you took sales in-house. Yes, uh uh-huh. And what did you learn at that point? You were getting advice from lots of people. I'm sure it was like a tough decision. What did you learn about sort of your own decision-making? I guess to trust it, you know. I think at that time, and I think our friend that we were talked about, Isha, she was, I kind of put out a call to friends and like, did you know anyone that wants to work in sales? And she wrote to me and said, you know, I think I could do it. I believe in what you're doing and I think I could sell it. And I mean, that was huge, obviously, for someone to say that to me, a friend especially. I think it builds your confidence and then you believe it. And then between the two of us, maybe at that time, we probably had a one or two employees. And if we're all believing in it, then there must be others too, you know? And so it's just kind of that faith, I guess, a little bit. And then cut to whatever, 15 years later, COVID hits. Right. Where every small independent company is yeah. hyper worried about the financial health. Yeah. How did you manage that process and what did that feel like? Ugh, that was horrible, horrible. I think I still have PTSD from that, but I mean, I wish I'd known about that PPP thing was going to come earlier. Yeah, we didn't know anything. Yeah, because when we had to close the stores, lay people off like during a pandemic. I mean, that's one thing when you're starting a business and you're hiring people and you're never thinking like, oh, if a health crisis comes, I mean, you're going to like have to lay people off, you know, Ugh, so hard. But I mean, it wasn't the worst thing. Some of the ones that we furloughed came back after we were able to open the stores again, like refreshed more refreshed, I would say, than the people that stayed on staff and like were in it with me day after day, you know. And you talk about your process is very people-oriented, design-driven. You were also sort of in lockdown. How did you manage to stay connected to people? (laughs) Well, we did an online sample sale. So we shipped pallets from my warehouse up to my house and put these three pallets in my garage And me and my husband and the kids, we unpacked it and we had an online sample sale and we packed it all ourselves and we wrote little notes and we like just got into it, you know, and just enjoyed it. And it brought me a lot of joy, honestly, to see that during this time of like dark period, so much fear and sickness and just sad that people were buying. When I would see somebody's order, they're buying the sequins and this colorful print and this fun thing that we made. I think, oh, great you know this is great this it was so much joy for me to send it out while everyone was in sweatpants yeah and just to know that life was going to go on a little bit I think off of that do you think that this athleisure thing is ending and people are getting back (laughs) to being dressed up how do you feel about kind of I don't know I don't know I saw some comic the other day that said oh do you know that you can wear your yoga clothes to the gym (laughs) I thought it was so funny I mean I think people enjoy getting dressed up for sure, you know, and it ebbs and flows. And it, I think the fact that people are traveling and moving into experiences again, that inspires people to dress. I think one of the joys of dressing for your friends, you know, so that they experience it, that you're bringing this effort to them or something, you know, there's a lot of joyful dressing. I want to say that's happening post pandemic where, where prior, I think I was focused a lot on, work experiences for women and like how do you want to feel when you're in that boardroom how do you want to feel when you're whatever depending on kind of more your vocation and your passion and outfitting that whether you're a chef or an artist or a lawyer or a on a book tour and just feeling like what are those clothes that's going to be important it's still important but I think that right now there's a bit more of a joyful experience because of the coming together of family and friends again after that pandemic. 
we've always focused on sort of the complete person, how a woman feels, yeah. moves in the garment. Yeah. Do you think clothing transforms someone's experience in life? I think it can. You know, I also spend time thinking about people that don't like clothes. When I talk to them, they're like, they, when they struggle with it and they just want it to work in this way for them in their life, if I can find a way to make those things for them, then I think that is transformative. Well, seeing the other, understanding the other is something you've talked about as sort of crucial to the creative process. How does empathy, and do you think about that, figure into design for you? Is it part of it? Is it crucial to it? For sure. For sure. For sure. Not just the vocation. I mean, this is a woman, a man, anyone. Experience as they age, you know, how their body changes. There's lots of things to think about. <laughs> right. But, you know, a lot of designers anchor their work in some sort of inspiration. Like, I went to Mexico oh, and yeah. saw this. You yeah. don't seem to work that way. Yeah, I'm not so themey like that. Or like escapist or something. I right. think I am sometimes. We do a little bit of that here and there. But I think it's a little bit more subtle ways or, you know, like, how do you feel feminine and mature or feminine and relaxed or what if you want to dress up for a red carpet thing but you don't want to dress you know what if right. that's not just your vibe what if you're more boyish and you're styling what's that look like so it's just like kind of getting into like the different experiences different lives bodies you seem to design for your own age in a way or your own community <laughs> and like yeah. you've grown with that do you have a consumer base or a customer base now that's in their early 20s? Certain products are like the gateway that you might buy first and then you come back again and you come back again and you like grow a little bit with the brand, I guess. I don't even like to use the word brand that much, but the company company you grow with our products or you experience our products over time because some of them are more more of a stretch, more of a like, I'm not sure if I'm ready to try that volume or this fabric that feels risky here in some way. But if you start to trust us through some other, you know, entry beginner products, whether it's a pair of shoes or jeans or a sweatshirt, then you might come back and say, oh, OK, now I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that. So I think there are certain places that a younger customer might start and then as they grow or. Right. With the brand. Or maybe their mom brings them in and then the bad daughters. Mm, okay. No. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. You know, back to the shows, you were talking about your first show, but your shows or performances have always been widely discussed and they're always engaging the audience in some way, yeah. almost as a part Thank of you. it. How do you think about the audience as part of the show? In the same way you're thinking about the person you're designing for, the individual. Right. Well, I think about what experience they want to have. I think... Like when we used to do the dinners at Pioneer Works at, at Dustin's, Dustin's place for a long time, we did dinners there. And at the time that was so crazy. Like, how could you expect an editor to come to Brooklyn? And well, how can you expect them to give you three hours of their time? Because they're used to being like, show, 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 show in their schedule. And all the PR people, you can't do that. You can't do that. And finally I said, well, it feels right. We're going to just try it. And if they don't want to come, they don't have to come. We just decided to do it. And... I wrote all the people I wanted to be there personally also and just reached out and said, I'd love you to come. We're doing a show and a dinner in Brooklyn. Will you come? Oh, sure, sure. Like everybody said yes. Everybody came. People want to have unique experiences, right? So I just think that if you do it well, then they're going to. And I think that your things that. I'm into that you're, in, you know, if I like somebody's work and whatever they're putting out in the world, there's a fair chance they're going to like mine too. That's one thing I've learned over the years. So if you take a risk and you write somebody that you don't know, like you guys did to me, like there's a fair chance that I'm going to enjoy your podcast. And I was like, oh, this is like a really, this makes sense, this exchange. So I think that with the shows, there's that. The audience person is somehow somebody that I want to communicate with, or they are already communicating with me in some way through their work. So, Like high maintenance. That's how that yeah, happened, yeah, right? Yeah. What's the story on that? Because they did like a whole episode. I know. Isn't that so funny? 
So high maintenance, I didn't know them. I just fanned them. You know, one of my younger employees introduced me to it and I just fell in love with it. I love their point of view about New York. I totally identify with it. Everything about it, I love. So I just wrote them to say, I just love your work. I just wanted to say, like, keep it up. It's awesome. I love it. And then they wrote back, oh, my God, you know, I love it. Your work, too. Let's meet. And then they came and we met like a month later or something. I said, come to my studio. Let's we'll get a coffee or something. And they came and they pitched the idea for their episode with their character. And I was, yeah, game. Yeah, of course. I'll do it. Whatever. And so we made some clothes for Dan and... They used some of my studio. Then they were like, can we get you in it for us? Okay. And some of my staff. So it was just fun, you know. And that's the kind of like fascinating communication that a company can do that you can't buy. I also just really enjoy casting, the experience of casting and connecting people. I introduced them to some other friends that ended up in some of their later episodes. So then, you know, that's kind of a nice fun thing to try to do, especially in New York. Expanding your own world in a way. Yeah, and like connecting people that might be interested in each other and, you know. You follow fashion seasons, but you don't show every season. No, we don't show every season, but we follow the same schedule. Right. Global schedule. I read this great quote. You said, to show twice a year can feel a little gluttonous. So I think it's nice to slow down and step back sometimes. Do you think this ultimately has worked for you in terms of Letting it rest for a second, keeping it special, kind of go away for a second to come back. Well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Is that part of the drive, though? Even if you, you say, had the budgets to do a blowout show twice a year and everything. I think it, it's a lot to try to do that. Not that I couldn't do it, because it, when you don't have a show, it's just as much work preparing the photo shoot and all of the materials that go into that. Sure. But, yeah, the hubbub, the press aspect of it seems too much twice a year these days, you know? Right. I don't know. It's because I'm older and it just seems like, boom, a year went by. Yeah. And when I was younger, twice a year, also when I was younger, we only did two collections a year. Now we do four. Right. So anyway, yeah, I think it makes sense. And I mean, clearly a lot of companies are just throwing the schedule out to the window and doing different types of things now. I was curious how you've reacted to being ripped off because you have been so many times. The most famous (laughs) one being the Legion pant. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What did it feel like to sort of be this company with a lot of integrity that's doing things on their own scale, finding your own way, and in this case, a very personal piece? Right. (laughs) Well, at that time, I kind of wished where manufacturing could speed up so that I could meet the demand that was out there because other companies could clearly make it happen a lot quicker than me. And we make everything to order and we don't stock a huge amount of inventory and, you know, all of that type of thing. That keeps you sustainable. Yeah, keeps us sustainable and just a general lower impact for everybody. But in general, it's fine. It's flattering. I have, we have tons of new ideas, you know. I don't really sweat it, honestly. Right. So there's nothing about the legion. It's fun for it to take off, you know, in a way. And see how it's interpreted and whatever. You know, when you designed the Legion Pan, it somehow had some touch point with your childhood. There seemed yes, to be some connection. I can connection. share that with you, yeah. When I was younger, me and my brothers were all on the shorter side. <laughs> so my mom would hem our pants, sometimes like four inches or something. And then as you grew, you know, you should take out the hem and take out the hem. And then it was always super embarrassing that there would be like in your jeans or some kind of worn line along the hemline as you grew. I didn't like it. I was embarrassed by it. Later, when we were exploring denim at my company for the first time, that kind of experience came back to me, and I thought it was like a fun nod, actually, to like your experience with denim in general, because denim does hold so much history to it and nostalgia, and I think it's fun to explore those references. Yeah, like making time visible. Yeah. In a way. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about was when you stood up your retail, which was like such a big deal oh, in New York. Thank the you. Beautiful board form concrete interior. Thank you. Oh, thank you for noticing. Such a special. I loved um, making that. Space. It really was so dynamic. The fitting rooms, I remember well when I would go with my wife. Oh, fun. Had such a vibe, you know, and they Thanks. were kind of big so two people could sit in them. Yes. What were your goals with that space? Because it wasn't 
a regular retail. It felt like something different when it arrived. Well, after wholesaling for like 12 years or something, 13 years, you know, your work gets interpreted by the buyer and put on a rack with a bunch of other brands. And but this is kind of even before like group websites show. and stuff. Yeah, like a group show. And so there's no real world of. And with that space, with our first space, I wanted to show the materiality exploration that I like do in our garments and in our footwear accessories and everything. I wanted to do that with the interior. I loved some of those materials like the board form concrete, the rocks that are on the shoe display. We got, (laughs) we hauled those back from Long Island from the North Fork. My husband made that display because our apartment is right next door. So we would down there while the like baby was sleeping, he would be down there like working on that casting that concrete display. So I think the like hardness juxtaposition with some of the softness, there's also some bits of humor, I would say, that appeal to me and surprises. I wanted with the dressing rooms to have this intimacy and the sound, I think, is also important in there because we put that shag rug on there so that you feel like protected a little bit because the dressing room is kind of a vulnerable place. Yeah, just a lot of different thought went into it and I still love it. I think it needs a little renovation, though. But it, <laughs> it was imbued with a lot of feeling, though. And yeah, that's but there really was different. a lot of expectations we had for it. How did you think about the staff? Because for the first time, you had people that worked with you. That I know were, that represented yeah public us. facing. I know that was exciting. I had a great store manager right from the get go. Who her name was Diane, and she was just so ready to like front the experience. So she brought a lot to that at the beginning. And just, you know, we have a really great, interesting, diverse staff and a great retail director now. So having people that understand their customers, understand their bodies, what they're looking for, you know, there's a lot that needs to happen in that experience for the shopper. And one other like kind of specific thing I wanted to ask you about that you've done recently is the collection with Target, which I think is oh, right. fascinating that, you know, you were a very kind of cool New York brand that is not inexpensive and not wide and populous. And then you did something at Target, which is, they have, of course, a long history of doing. What was this opportunity really about for you? Why did you take it? Well, I mean, besides the obvious, like (laughs) it's a great business opportunity. Yeah. But what were you thinking about in terms of the customer? Well, in terms of the customer and also they have an incredible staff there and they know so well what they're trying, who they're serving and how. And they have an incredible size range from, I don't even know what it goes up to or down to, but it's very broad. So it can fit a lot of different bodies. So that's incredible, you know, huge opportunity. And it was nice too, as during the pandemic to collaborate with another team that was so dialed and so not phased by it (laughs) exactly. So that was nice to be working remotely. and With stability. Yeah, and amazing to like see the structure of a company like that. Incredible. So before I let you go, I just want to ask, you're turning 50 this year, right? (laughs) Yeah. What do you love most about this period of your life, your business, this whole moment? I don't know. I feel like I should answer that after I turn 50, but what do I love most about my life and my, well, I mean, my family, my children. I love being part of the creative fabric of this town. I like opportunities like this to meet people and explore their creative expressions. And honestly, I don't take that time to reflect on that. And maybe I should. I'm just always kind of keep working on the new thing, the new thing or whatever. So, but I probably should. I am taking a hiking trip that I'm looking forward to contemplating on, so... Amazing. Thank you for coming in today, Rachel. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Extra thanks to our season six sponsor, Le Cole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. A unique place for learning, Le Cole welcomes the general public to the world of jewelry through courses, conferences, exhibitions, videos, and book publications. You can find more about LeCole at www.lecolemancleefarpels.com. 
That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can listen to our other podcasts at a distance by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. And if you like our programs, please be sure to subscribe and leave comments. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.